band. I was going to say, Peter, you like waiting? That, that sounds horrible. I hate waiting. Yeah, right? Uh, good morning. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Hiawatha Church. And again, like uh, Emily and Peter said before me, welcome uh, to our church this morning, especially if you are a visitor, especially for those of you who are here for the very first time uh, this morning. We're really glad uh, that you are here. And uh, we started at the beginning of, of uh, 2016 going through the first book of the Bible. So if you're brand new to church or to the Bible, uh, the Bible is made up of 66 different books, and we're at the very, very beginning. So the, the word Genesis means beginning. So we're in the book of Genesis, at the very beginning of the Bible. And the first few weeks, we saw God in creation. So we saw God out of nothing. We saw him create the universe and everything in it. We saw God... Uh, create the, the, the heavens and the earth. We saw him create vegetation and oceans and animals and birds. And we saw it, uh, the pinnacle of that creation end up being humanity. So a couple things uh, that we need to know before we get into our passage today. First is that God is creator. So God is the, the one who creates life. So he created everything out of nothing. So it wasn't that God took a couple living things and put them together and and something else living was born, but rather he created out of nothing. He's the, the, the creator, the giver, the inventor of life. And we also see that even though humanity was his greatest creation, because it reflected him, it, humanity was made in God's image, uh, even though it is his most important creation, it's still very, very different than God. So God has a personhood to him, yet he is much, much higher than Humanity, And we need to see those things uh, or remember those things if you were here earlier on in Genesis as we go into our passage today. So today, as, as Peter alluded to, actually he didn't allude to, he just told you, uh, this, this, uh, this week's passage is going to be about Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Well, I'll, I'll introduce you to them in a little bit, but um, the title for today's sermon is, is Anything Too Hard for the Lord? That's actually a quote we're going to get. God is going to speak this question to Abram, Abraham and Sarah. Is anything too, hard for, from the, anything too hard for the Lord? And we're going to be reading from Genesis, the, the first part of Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15. So you can follow along uh, on the screen. It'll be up there. It's also inside uh, your worship folders as well. So we're going to start uh, 18.1 through verse 15. And the Lord appeared to him, appeared to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So think about uh, Abraham. He's living in a very, very warm climate. He lives in a tent. So kind of just think about in the summer, probably this week. It's going to be the 90s. Often we'll see people outside, especially if they don't have AC in their house. During the heat of the day, people go and they sit on their porch, sit on their front stoop, sit outside because it just is so hot. So that's what's going on here. So it's very hot uh, during the, the heat of the day. Abram is sitting at the door of his tent, kind of just looking out. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and, and rest yourself under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourself. And after that, you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, 
three seahs of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent behind him. Now Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you. About this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it. I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, what it teaches us about yourself, how it foreshadows and predicts uh, the gospel, the coming of Christ, and what, what he will do. We pray, Spirit, uh, as, as you were the author of this, this book, that you would also uh, speak to us this morning, that you would illuminate your words, that you would teach us, that you would convict us of sin, that you would remind us of the hope that we have in Christ. Pray your Spirit, remove this morning and, and be here. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so kind of, kind of a strange passage. Maybe some of you have heard it before, or parts of it at least. But just to summarize, so what's, what's going on in Genesis 18, 1 through 15? Essentially what's going on is God comes to Abraham, Abraham and Sarah in human form. He demonstrates friendship and kind of the covenant that he just made with him uh, in last week's passage. He, de- he demonstrates that friendship through eating, through having a meal with him, and then brings good news. God comes in human form, demonstrates friendship through eating, and brings good news. So first thing is, uh, most people think that what's going on, and we'll, we'll talk about why, we think that it is it's God and two angels that are coming in the form of man here. number of reasons why we think that, uh, the author actually says that the, the Lord came to Abraham. We see Abraham, when he speaks to uh, these three men, especially to one, he says, Oh Lord, and he actually uses a word that's, that's more divine as opposed to just a, a respectful word as well. And then later on, we're going to see uh, ne- in next week's passage, in chapter 19, verse 1, it says, the Lord stayed with Abraham, Abraham and, and the men, the other two men, going to the city of Sodom. So most people think what's going on is uh, one of these three men is actually God in human form, um, and then the other two are angels. What we see God and, and, and these angels do here is we see that they have a meal with Abraham, demonstrating friendship as well as this, this renewal or this reminder of the covenant that he just made with Abraham in uh, chapter 17. So eating a meal in, in the ancient world symbolized a lot. It really meant a lot. Think about, uh, if you know the story of, of Jesus, a lot of the times the religious rulers were getting on Jesus' case because he was eating with sinners. He was eating with people that you shouldn't be eating with in that time. He was eating with tax collectors and, and prostitutes. He was eating with lepers and sick, sick people and, and sinners. And he got in big trouble because it wasn't just that he was actually sitting next to someone at a restaurant and having a ca- casual conversation, but especially in the ancient world, eating a meal demonstrated friendship, demonstrated 
connection, demonstrated some type of, of intimacy and friendship, which is really powerful. We, we've seen, if you've been here in, the, uh, in our series so far, Genesis 12, we start to see this character, Abraham. And first time we see him, he's actually not worshiping God. He's not actually worshiping the Lord. He's actually in a far-off country worshiping false gods, worshiping idols, and God calls him out of that. So, so far from Genesis 12 to where we're at in Genesis 18, we've seen Abraham go from being a stranger to God, someone far off, someone worshiping idols, worshiping false gods, even being an enemy of God, all the way to now we see God covenanting with him and now God demonstrating friendship. So no longer an alien, no longer a stranger, no longer an enemy, and more than just an acquaintance or a business partner or someone that, that God has made this, this legal contract with, but rather God is demonstrating friendship with Abraham. Like I said, too, it's a reminder of God's covenant. Not, I'm not going to say a ton on this, but all of last week we talked about uh, Genesis 17. God makes uh, kind of um, finishes his covenant with Abraham. It happens a couple different times in Genesis early on here where God tells Abraham, he just picks him, this, this, this nobody in this far-off land. He picks him and he says, if you leave your land and come with me, I will give you a land. I will make you into a great nation. So think, I'll give you lots of offspring that will grow and grow and grow and you have a great, uh, you become a great nation. And through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So God kind of gives him three promises through this covenant. God shows that he will do it no matter what. He's been reminding Abraham and Sarah again and again and again and then again, he's going to do it again today. And so this, this meal, this interaction is actually a reminder of God's covenant with Abraham. So God comes in human form. He demonstrates friendship, and he brings good news. He doesn't bring condemnation. He doesn't just show up, but he actually brings good news. And the first part of the, the good news that he brings is he says, kind of like Peter uh, said earlier, that this, this covenant, this promise that I gave to you, it's going to happen. And here's a timetable. We've been saying it for a long time. I've been reminding you, Abraham and Sarah, again and again and again, but now it's, it's, it's going to happen. So here's just a, a simple chart here. So if, uh, starting in Genesis 12, we see Abraham leaving his, where, where he was from and now entering Canaan, this, this land God promises him. That was when he was 75 years old. Okay? And so we have, we've been going through this in just a few months, and probably it seemed like a long time for some of us thinking, Wow, God, you promised way back in like February that you were going to give him a son, and now it's July. But, but if we look at the actual years, I mean, this, this is something that has, has been going on for decades, that Abraham and Sarah have been waiting for, for, for 25 years. So a few weeks ago, we saw Abraham. His name was Abram back there. Ab- Abraham and, and Sarah just kind of gave up, and they said, we're getting so old. There's no way that we're going to be able to have a kid, but we need to. We're going to do our part to make sure God's promise works. And so Abraham sleeps with, with a servant and has Ishmael. So that was when he was 85 years old. Now fast forward. So now uh, in our story today, Abraham is 99, or almost 100 years old. His wife's 10 years younger. She's, she's 89 or 90 years old right now. And so think about the great news that this would be. It's been a long long time that they have been waiting. And finally, God says, it's going to happen. By this time next year, not only, will be, not only will Sarah be pregnant, but she will have had a son by now. Also, part of this good news, God promises new life. 
where once there wasn't any life, God is going to miraculously step in and create life. He's going to give them a biological son, not just Abraham and this, this younger servant of Sarah, but actually Abraham and Sarah together are going to have a biological son. It's going to come through his wife, Sarah. God will bring new life where, humanly speaking, it was impossible. And thirdly, God's good news is a blessing. That the beginning of this great nation, the beginning of all the nations of the world being blessed through Abraham's family, it's finally going to start. Within one year, the child is going to be born. The covenant is going to come fully true. And also in last week's passage, uh, God described his covenant with Abraham and then Abraham's son, who we're hearing about today. In uh, last week, we read in chapter 17, verse 19, God calls his covenant an everlasting covenant. So God brings great news, great blessing. He says, not only is this covenant going to be with you, Abraham, not only with you and your children and your children's children and all your offspring and descendants, and it's not just going to end with them, but it's going to be an everlasting covenant. So God continues to kind of up the ante or, or kind of blow back the fog of what this covenant really does entail. So that's kind of what's going on in our story, especially in the, in the, in the beginning part of 18. So some of you, you know, might be thinking, great, this, this is a very interesting story. It, it helps me see God's character and what he's trying to do. And yes, it is, you know, pretty helpful, but just on, on an emotional level, on a, on a personal level, the story just seems quite removed. Like this happened 4,000 years ago on the other side of the world in a very different culture. It just doesn't seem very applicable to me or or as relevant to me as well. And, and, and in some ways, that is true, right? This happened so long ago, and it, it is interesting, and it does really tell us a lot about God and his character. But what this story also does, not only, not only does it speak to Abraham and Sarah and their, their story and their circumstance 4,000 years ago, but it foreshadows when God would come again in human form, demonstrating his friendship with us, and bringing us the ultimate good news, which is the gospel. In John 1, so Jesus uh, is this guy we're speaking about, when God would come again in human form. Some of you might have caught, up, caught on to that right away when I read that about what's happening in our story. You thought, hey, that, that happens again later on in the story. That happens in an even greater way through Jesus, right? So one of Jesus' disciples, uh, a guy named John, wrote about Jesus' life and his ministry, and the, that book is called the book of John. And at the very beginning, this is what John writes about Jesus, kind of picking up on, on this same idea right here. John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word. So the Word is, is another name for Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Sorry, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So right away, John says that this person who came into human history, came in human form, is actually God himself. Skip ahead to verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, who were born of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus. So we see that God, again, in a much greater way, came 
in human form. And he came to, to demonstrate friendship, to, to show us that we can no longer be strangers, no longer be aliens, no longer be someone who's far off from God or even is an enemy of God, but that they can, if they believe in his name, as it says in verse 12 here, they can become not just friends, but also children of God. They can be welcomed and adopted into God's household. We see verse 14 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So God came in human history. He came as a man, and he didn't just come to give us some teachings and then leave. He didn't just come to just give a message like a prophet and get out of there, but he actually dwelt among us. He stayed among us. We're going to unpack this a, a little bit more in, in just a second. And then verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So when Jesus Christ came into the world in the form of the man, his, his good news was not just more laws, was not just more rules. It's actually very different than the law, very different than all the rules back in the Old Testament that God gave his people. But when, when Jesus came, grace and truth came with him. He came with ultimate good news, not just good news that, that God has laws for us to keep, and if we do, we'll be close to him, but rather good news that his salvation has come, and it comes through him, through believing in him and through grace alone. Philippians 2 also speaks of, of Jesus coming to earth in this same way that we saw back in Genesis 18, offering incredible friendship to us and bringing us this ultimate good news. Philippians 2, 5-8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of, of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, so different than our story today. In our story today, God came in human form and humanity served him. Humanity brought him food, made a meal for him. We, we see in our passage today, after Abram brings him the food, he kind of stands under the tree just waiting like a servant would. Like, do you need anything else? Can I get you some more water, more wine, salt, whatever? But in, un, unlike that, what Jesus did, he didn't come in human form so that humanity could serve him, but rather he came in the form of a servant. And then the next verse says, this is how he served humanity ultimately, by humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. John, again, the same disciple of Jesus writes, later on in his book in, in John 15, he says, he quotes Jesus saying, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater, greater love has no one than this than someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have from my father, I have made known to you. So just like Abraham at the beginning of, of his story, in chapter 12, apart from Christ, we are far off from God. We're in a distant land. We're, we're strangers to God. We're aliens. And we're even, the Bible describes us as enemies of God. We're worshiping other false gods, whether it's ourselves, whether it's success, whether it's money, whether it's power, relationships, whatever it might be. We, we were just like Abraham, Abraham at the beginning of his story. But 
Jesus, Jesus comes into the world and he tells his disciples, there's no greater love out there than this. Someone who dies for their friends. Someone who intentionally lays down their life for their friends. And then he does that. And then he does that for us. Look at verse 14 too, what he says. He says, no longer do I call you my disciples or my followers, but I call you now friends. Think how crazy that is. Not, not only a first century rabbi to tell the people that were following him that they were his friends, but that's what God offers to us today through Jesus Christ. Not just right standing with him, not just adoption as, as sons and daughters, which he does, and those are amazing as well, but he calls us friends. Think about the difference maybe between uh, uh, you, your relationship with a parent, or your relationship with a sibling, even if you love them, and think about how that's in some ways different than a friend. You love your parents, even if they drive you nuts, or even if they've hurt you, you still probably love them. Same thing with a sibling, but a friend, a friend you like, a friend you want to be around, a friend you, you choose to spend time with, to invest your life with them. It's a very beautiful, powerful picture. And that's what Jesus says to his disciples and says to us today. We put our trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. He offers us friendship. He's, he offers us closeness and intimacy. So Jesus resembles what happens in our passage today in Genesis 18. Jesus came as a man. He offered friendship and brought us not just good news, not just good news that some covenants, some promises are going to be fulfilled, but he brought us the greatest news, the best news that this world has ever heard, similar to, similarly to our passage today. First thing is he came saying that he was fulfilling, fulfilling the covenant, that he was what all the Old Testament was about. This whole covenant with Abraham was always pointing ahead to Jesus. One of the books in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 3, says, and it quotes what's, what's going on back, back in the Old Testament with, with God making a covenant with Abraham. It says that uh, part of this covenant is through Abraham, through your offspring, all the nations, all the families of the world are going to be blessed. And then Galatians looks back at this and says, actually, Jesus was Abraham's ultimate offspring. He literally, biologically, was an ancestor. He was an offspring of Abraham. And he was what, it, it, what that was always pointing to. It was through Jesus that the whole world will be blessed. Without that, it doesn't really make sense, right? You think about the nation of Israel, you think about the Jewish people. Yeah, in many ways, they have blessed many people on the earth, but have, have every, uh, every tribe, every nation, every family, have they been blessed through the, the Israelite people, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people? Not quite, but it makes sense then if Jesus is the ultimate offspring, which Galatians 3 says that he is through Jesus, fulfilling the covenant and the promise, not only, uh, yeah, not only is the promise and covenant fulfilled in him, but through all that, we can now receive new life in Christ. So where, where life, humanly speaking, where it wasn't possible, now in Christ, it is possible. So now through, through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, we move from, from barrenness to new birth to being reborn. We move from spiritual death to now spiritual life. And finally, just like in our passage today, Jesus brings good news by, by bringing blessing 
and salvation. It's through his life and his death and his resurrection that we now can have friendship with God, that we can now have sins be forgiven, that we can now have eternal life, not just full life here, but life for eternity. We can be saved, not just, uh, not just redeemed or bought back from, from sin and death, but we're actually saved into a new spiritual family. We're saved into a church, a community. All right, now, now let's spend some time looking at the second part of our passage today, Sarah and Abraham's response, especially Sarah's, to God's promise. So God shows up, gives them a promise, and says, okay, I've been telling you this for 25 years. This year it's going to happen. And what does Sarah do? She laughs. Let's look at what happened again. Verse 9 said, Then they said to him, where, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old. And just in case you, you didn't get what he was trying to say, they said it another way. They were very advanced in years. The way of women uh, had ceased to be with Sarah, so she was no longer able to have her menstrual cycle, thus literally, biologically, physically unable to have children. And this passage makes it very clear, so we're not uh, tempted to think, well, something just happened. They finally were able to conceive after all these years, but this passage makes it very clear that was not the case. Verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure or shall I be able to conceive? Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I shall return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did. So first of all, just in case... Uh, you were not here last week, or you forgot about last week. Uh, Abraham also laughed at the same promise that God gave him. Even though Sarah is, is probably more famously or infamously known for laughing at God's promise, last week's passage, Genesis 17, we see Abraham doing the exact same thing. Verse 16 from, from last week's passage, this is God speaking. I will bless her, I will bless Sarah, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Now look what Abraham does. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? So even though Sarah definitely gets a bum rap, and many of you even knew that story that she laughed at, at God's promise, I think someone falling on their face and laughing is, is probably even worse than that. But either way, whether, whether we're focusing on Sarah's this week or, or Abram laughing at God from last week, I think in, in many ways, or at least on a human level, we can really sympathize with them, right? Even though we're reading the story, we have all the, the information in front of us, we can say, of course, they should have trusted God, obviously. But on a very human level, we can understand, right? Most of us can, at least. We can sympathize with them. It's been 25 years since God's original promise. 25 years. Some of you aren't even 25 years old today, so think about your, your entire lifetime you've been waiting for a promise that God has given you. And remember, God, God did come again and again and again and again and remind them of that promise. It still has been decades that they've been waiting and waiting 
for this part of the covenant, this part of the promise to, to come. And that, we just know on a human level, we're just so forgetful. Think about, you know, just our, our, our spiritual lives in general. You might hear a word preached. You might read something uh, in the Bible at home. You might, uh, God might really speak to you through some song lyrics or something, and you're really convicted, or, or you really believe a certain truth. But just days later, maybe even hours later, you're living as if you don't believe that anymore. Humanity, we're, we're just so forgetful. It's, it's so easy for us to forget God's promises to us. And if you look in the Bible, God knows humanity. He knows us in our, in our fallen condition. We forget. We really forget easily. So all throughout the Old Testament, he's saying, do this. Do, do this uh, celebration. Do this ceremony. Uh, put these rocks up here. All these different things so that you remember. Because if you don't sing this song, if you don't do this celebration, if you don't do this festival, you're going to forget that I rescued you out of Egypt. You're going to forget that you used to be slaves. You're going to forget that I am the one true God. And so again, all throughout the Old Testament, he does that. New Testament, we see the same thing. We see uh, the, the, the letters written to churches saying, don't stop gathering. Don't stop getting together. You're going to think, oh, I'm okay. You're going to think, I already know that. You're going to think, man, Spencer and Chris preach the same thing every single week. I'm okay. But the New Testament reminds us again and again, don't stop meeting because we forget. We forget so easily. And most of us here know people who have stopped coming to church, have stopped gathering with Christians, and they're wandering from the faith or have even left the faith. That's why we also, Jesus told his church one of the sacraments, he says, do this all the time so that you will remember the cross. So that's why many churches and, and us as well, we, we offer communion, the Lord's Supper, every single week. And we, even once a month, we switch our service around and make that the, the focal point of our service because Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Take, take physical bread and physical wine or juice and, and remember what it symbolizes so that you remember the cross because we forget. So it's actually an act of grace. He's saying, I'm giving you this gift. It kind of seems like, like a law or like a, a, a rule to do again and again, but he's saying, do it because I know your hearts. I know we're going to forget. So we can be sympathetic, Right? We might kind of laugh at Abraham and Sarah in this story, but we can also be sympathetic because we know our own hearts. We know that ourselves also forget. And then thirdly, we can sympathize because this is literally impossible. So God doesn't just show up and say, hey, next year this tree is going to grow a little taller or next year you're going to be a little more wealthy. He says next year something impossible is going to happen. And again, like we said, this passage tells us in many different details that Sarah conceiving with Abraham is, is biologically, physically, humanly speaking, impossible. I, I looked up on Wikipedia, so this must be true. The uh, oldest woman to ever give birth, 66 years old. A woman in, uh, recorded at least, maybe it was, anyway, according to Wikipedia, 66 years old, but that happened through uh, IVF and donor egg, so it wasn't completely natural as well. There was some, some medical help as well. So in recorded history, we've only ever seen someone 66 years old having a baby. Right now, uh, Sarah is 89 years old in our story. And they've been trying for decades, right? Especially in ancient times, having children was really important. It's important now, but it was even more important back then because th there was no health care. There was no, uh, you know, hospitals. There were well, there, wasn't, uh, you know, governments to, to protect people and to help people out when they, when they get out. There, w 
There wasn't nursing homes. And so all, all of that, or most of that, came through your extended family. So it was super important for you to have children and grandchildren because when you got old, you needed people to take care of you. You needed protection. You needed your tribe to be large enough to protect yourselves. So already, Abraham and Sarah have been trying to have kids for decades. And then when they, you know, 25 years ago from our story, they hear this promise and they continue to try. They even go so far as, you know, Abraham sleeping with, with the servant in order to have a child as well. So humanly speaking, it's impossible. They've tried for decades and decades and decades and decades, and it hasn't happened. She's not able to have her, her menstrual cycle. So another reason that it is, uh, we're given a detail that it cannot happen unless a miracle happens. Yet, God promises that within a year, they will have a son. So then God, God asked them this question. So Sarah kind of scoffs. She laughs. I, I was talking with Tyler this morning. He kind of wondered, well, what, what kind of laugh was it? You know, was it like a Abraham fall on the ground and laugh? This is so ridiculous. Maybe, I, I think it was maybe more like a scoff and kind of an eye roll. Like, seriously, God, I'm 89 years old. Seriously, this, you've been saying this for a while. It's not going to really happen. But how does God respond to them? He responds to the laugh by saying, is anything too hard? Or other translations say incredible. Is anything too incredible for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And specifically with Abraham and Sarah, let's just look at their life and see how the answer is obviously no. There is nothing that is too hard for the Lord. God is the God who, had, who has called them out of their land. He's the God that protected them from Pharaoh and the Egyptians, even, br- even bringing about supernatural plagues to protect them when they were in Egypt. He's the God who empowered Abraham and just a few hundred men to defeat five kings in order to rescue Abraham's nephew Lot. He's the God who has made Abraham very wealthy, prosperous, and secure, despite not having any offspring. And he's the God who showed up multiple times, supernaturally, speaking to them, reminding them again and again and again of his promises towards them. He's the God who covenanted with Abram and said, this is what I will do, and has reminded him of it again and again and again. So to answer God's question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too incredible for the Lord? No. God can do the impossible. He can create life where it does not exist. Go way back to the beginning of Genesis, like we talked about at the, at the beginning of the, the sermon. God spoke and life came into existence out of nothing. He can do that in Genesis 1 and 2. He can do it again here in their lives. The book of Romans, another New Testament book, looking back at the, the story that we're looking at today, describes God and Abraham and, and his situation. And look, look how it describes God. Really cool picture. Romans 4, 17 says, The presence of God in whom he believed. So speaking of Abraham, Abraham believed in God. Now listen how it describes God, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. I just love that. Who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. We saw that at the beginning. Genesis, God and creation. We're seeing this again in Abraham's life. And next week we're going to see that they actually do have a child. There will be no question 
when the 90-year-old Sarah conceives a child, that this isn't her or Abraham's work that produced this life, but rather that God has created and given life where it never existed before. Again, this story foreshadows Jesus Christ himself, right? And even more important in an even more miraculous conception. Think about Jesus and his conception himself. So Jesus' mother, Mary, she was young, she was a virgin. And when the angel shows up to tell Mary, you're going to have a kid, she responds with, okay, I'm young, but I, I do kind of understand virgin equals you can't be pregnant. Yet, it happens, right? So again, in a much more important way than even with, with Abraham and Isaac, we see what was humanly impossible, God has made happen. He creates life where life does not exist. So God making life where it doesn't exist, it's not only part of his character, which it is, it's not only seen throughout the whole Bible, we looked at a bunch of them already today, it is that, but it is also central to our faith, central to the Christian faith. Think about Jesus' life and his ministry. Jesus, after his own miraculous conception, throughout his ministry, he taught that we have to be, in order to be saved, we have to be born a second time. We have to be reborn. So something that's humanly impossible, the, the guy he's telling this to is like, you have to be born again. So how can a man enter his mother's womb? He's trying to like figure it out logically. It just doesn't make sense, right? But Jesus teaches that in order to be saved from our sins and given eternal life, we need to have a spiritual birth. We need more than just a physical birth. And then Jesus, throughout his ministry, he demonstrated again and again and again this same power as he gave life to people who are diseased, people who are lame, people who are sick, giving them physical life, giving them new life where they didn't have life before, and even at times literally speaking to dead bodies and they rose from the grave. Sometimes even bodies that have been rotting for days. So all of this, Jesus' own conception, his life, his teaching, his miracles, all this pointing to the reality that spiritually we're dead in our sins and we need to be reborn. We need new life. That's the ultimate good news is that there is new life. The news that God brought in Genesis 19, that's good news, but that's not great news yet. But we see it becomes great news through Jesus, that there actually is not just one little baby being born to a woman who is barren, but that there is actually spiritual life given to people who are spiritually dead. There's this one time where Jesus is talking to his disciples about his kingdom, about Jesus' his eternal and, and spiritual kingdom. And he, he's talking about how hard it is to get in to his kingdom. And he uses this, this word picture that helps the disciples and then helps us as the readers, understand the impossibility of salvation. The impossibility of salvation. Mark 10 says, uh, And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, How difficult it would be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus uses this word picture. He takes the, the biggest animal that they know of and the smallest thing that they know of, an eye of a needle. He says, it's easier for a camel, the largest, animal, the largest animal that we know of, to get through this tiny little hole. It's easier for that to happen than for someone to enter the kingdom of God. 
which that's impossible, right? So he says, it's easier for the impossible to happen than for someone by themselves, humanly speaking, to enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples actually get it. Often the disciples don't get Jesus' teachings or parables, but they get it here. Listen to what they say. Verse 26, And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus, you just said, In order to be saved, the impossible must happen. And so they're like, Well, then who can be saved? Because we know a camel can't get through the eye of a needle. And I see Jesus kind of smiling, thinking, Oh, they finally got this one right. They understand what I'm trying to say. Yes, you're right. Then who can be saved? What a great question. And Jesus responds, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible. Which echoes our story today. With man, Sarah conceiving, it's impossible. But God shows up and brings life where there isn't life. And now on a much, much more important level, a cosmic level, a level that's, that's to all humanity, not just Abraham's offspring, it is offered to us. Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. So salvation, linked to spiritual life. Called, it's called spiritual life. Salvation is humanly impossible. Both God, the impossible, now becomes a reality for those who trust in Jesus Christ. Life, both life now as well as spiritual and eternal, it's miraculously given. It's not earned. It doesn't make sense. It's a miracle. It's beyond human capacity. Life is miraculously given through Jesus Christ. And just like with Sarah, for life to exist, God must show up. A little later on in Mark, Jesus continues. He, he, he spells out how life will come through him, how the impossible will now be made possible. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So unlike our story today, God comes in human form and he doesn't say, Abraham, make me a really good meal. Show me great hospitality and serve me. And then I will give you the good news. But Jesus came and he said, I I'm going to come not to be served by you. You're not going to earn your salvation by serving God. Jesus didn't come into the world so that you can serve him. Brother, he came as a servant. And he tells us, this is how he came to serve us. Not by giving you a great car or great health or prosperity or whatever, but this is how he came. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. A ransom. He's going to buy us back from the prison of spiritual death. It's through Jesus' giving up his life that we can now have life. We are served by Jesus dying in our place. He doesn't demand us to serve him or to offer him sacrifices, but rather we are just ransomed back from the prison of death. So three questions I, I want us all to answer in response to our passage today as we leave. First one is, do you feel distant from God? Do you feel like an alien? Do you feel like a stranger? Do you feel like a stepchild? He's, you're kind of in his family, but you know, he doesn't really quite love you as a father. Do you feel like you're just an employee? Do you feel like he just kind of loves you? Or he just kind of likes you, but hates other parts of you? Do you feel distant from God? Or do you know that through Christ, 
You can have intimacy, friendship, and acceptance. When you think about your relationship with God, do those those three words come up? Intimacy. Not just on your part, not just, I have really good quiet time, or I worship with all my heart when we sing on a Sunday morning, but do you feel like you have intimacy with God? Or that that's uh, available to you, that that's been given to you? Friendship. Do you describe your relationship with, with God as a friend? Do you see him as a friend? Do you feel accepted in Christ? If you are a Christian, all three of those things are given to you today. And just like our story today, you have circumstances in your life, just like Abraham and Sarah did, that, that drowned out God's promises to you. And we can either choose to laugh and scoff and say, well, yeah, God, you call me your friend, but a friend would never treat me like this, or a friend would do X, Y, and Z, and I don't see you doing that. Or God, you do say I have acceptance, but do you remember what I've done? Do you remember what I did last week? Do you remember what was done to me? You know my heart. There's no way you can really accept me. So are you choosing to trust what God says about you? Are you choosing to trust what what Jesus has done for you? Or are you letting your circumstances drown out these promises of intimacy, friendship, and acceptance? And if today you don't feel those things and you haven't trusted in Christ, as, as, your, as your Savior, that's what he offers you today. The God of this universe, that God created everything, became a man so that you could have intimacy with him. You could have friendship with him. You could have acceptance through, through repentance and, and trust in Jesus' work. Second question I want us to, to answer, have you received salvation or do you think your past sins or your heart or stuff that's been done to you is something that God just can't overcome? Do you believe that it's impossible for God to to forgive your sins or to make you clean or to to bring you close to him? Or as our passage said today, have you received salvation or do you think that there is something that is too hard for God? Something that's too incredible for him to overcome? To be honest, a lot of us probably struggle with this a bit. Even if we do believe we are saved, we still wrestle with our sin. We wrestle with our past. We wrestle with our hearts and our mind, just knowing how wicked we are. And we think that actually that might be something. Whether we believe it, whether we say it or not, we practically live as if those sins, those, those things are keeping us from God. The Gospel Transformation Bible speaks to this in light of Genesis 18. God's purposes of grace are not held captive by human sin or adverse circumstances. What great news there. God's purposes of grace are not held captive by our sin or by these horrible circumstances we find ourselves in. He is the God who works out his purposes through weak and ordinary human beings such as Abraham and Sarah. They're not really heroes of the faith. When we hear about Abraham and Sarah being talked about as heroes in the Bible, they say they're heroes because they trusted God. And we know that they didn't trust God perfectly either, but they were heroes not because they were great people, but because they, they knew God and they believed him. They trusted him. He's the God who works out his purposes through weak and ordinary human beings. If you feel like a weak and ordinary human being, and I do all the time, that's such great news. Right? He doesn't just use the perfect people. He doesn't just use the really wealthy or prosperous or talented people. He uses the weak and ordinary, 
weak and ordinary human beings, just like Abraham and Sarah. The walk of faith involves looking our difficult circumstances in the face and with the promises of God, defying the discouragements, disappointments, and frustrations that tempt us to abandon hope in God. Nothing is too hard for God. Indeed, he has already done the hardest thing in becoming one of us and dying for us. Shall he fail to care for us in a thousand lesser ways? Finally, the third question I want us to ask ourselves, what truths or promises from God are you not believing because of your circumstances? Whether you've been a Christian for a week or for your whole lifetime, there's, there's probably many truths in the Bible that you're just not believing because your circumstance says something contrary to that. And you're believing your sickness, your broken relationships, your sin, problems in your life, you're believing that that trumps what God has said about your life. So what are those? What truths or promises from God are you not believing because of your circumstances? We laugh at God. We doubt him at times. We roll our eyes when he says something that we just don't feel about ourselves. We mistrust him. Romans 4 speaks of Abraham in this, in this exact same situation. Look what it says about him. It says, In hope Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Listen to what it says in the middle there. He did not weaken in faith. If, if uh, not so much in today's passage with Abraham, but all before this, from chapter 12 all the way to now, we see Abraham again and again mistrusting God or forgetting or not believing God. Yet, the New Testament describes him as a hero of faith. Or in Romans here it says, he did not weaken his faith. So we know that Abraham wasn't perfect, but he was still described like this. So trusting God, this should be great encouragement for us who, who don't have perfect faith that, that always is without doubt. Trusting God doesn't mean perfect, unwavering faith. We put our hope in God amidst our doubts and our confusions and our circumstances, knowing that he is a trustworthy God. So the Bible can describe Abraham as a man of faith, even though we've seen multiple times where he didn't have faith, multiple times where his circumstances made him question God. But he always returned to God. He always said, okay, I don't get it, but you're going to show up. Thanks for reminding me. Thanks for showing up and reminding me, telling me this again and again, because I need to remember it. I trust you. Thanks, God. So that should be great hope for many of us who, who just like Abraham, forget God's truths. To know that we don't have to have perfect, unwavering, doubtless faith for it to be true and real faith. Romans 8.32 says, speaking of God, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So if, or probably when is a better way to say it, when you're questioning whether or not you can trust God, when you're questioning whether or not what he says about you is really true, even when your circumstances seem to defy God's goodness in those promises, look to the cross. That's what Romans 8 says. 
says, when you want to know whether or not you can trust God, look to the cross. And that act of love will remind you, yeah, you can trust him. He loved you so much, he did not even spare his own son. And think about, if you're a parent here today, think about that. Think about, picture your, your child in your mind right now. God did not spare his own son because he loved you so much. So that tells us, that reminds us, that proves that God is trustworthy. And that even when our circumstances or our doubts creep up, we can trust God. So look to the cross. See there who God is. A God who loves you so much, he, he did not even spare his own son. And because of that, we can trust him and always know that he's a gracious God and that He is a good God. We can trust him. We can trust his promises to us. And we can trust how he describes us. Please pray with me. God, we thank you for the cross. That people who are terrified because of our circumstances, who have great doubts and mistrust, who have just horrible sinful hearts and minds, who have gone through horrible things being done to us, whatever our state may be, God, you, you call us yours. You call us clean and washed and forgiven and your children and your friends. God, we pray that one of those truths would land home in every single person in this room today. Whatever we need to hear today, whether we feel far off, whether we feel dirty, whether we feel unloved, whether we have uh, too much doubt, whether we're mistrusting your character, whatever it might be, God, give us, you give us many, many uh, truths about ourselves. God, so we pray that at least one of those would land with every single person in this room and we'd be able to leave today knowing that you're a good and gracious God that loves us deeply, that cares for us, that has saved us, that wants to be our friend. Help us to believe that. Pray this in your saving name, Jesus. Amen.